This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today's episode features a conversation with Chris Willis. Chris Willis is the Chief Marketing Officer of Acrolinx, an industry pioneer that is changing how we think about language across borders, across cultures, and across national boundaries. Chris and I talk about how tech is transforming translation and just how human language is in an age when AI can do a lot of the talking. Chris is widely recognized for his public speaking, his innovation, and his ability to build success from the ground up. His work focuses on centering tech around human values and foregrounding inclusive language practices in technology and translation. Hi, Chris. Hi. So Chris, I was super excited to talk to you because as an academic whose object of study is language, I'm really interested in the way that our digital and globally connected world is posing, I think, new challenges for, and also new ways of thinking about or solving how we talk to one another across cultures, across language barriers, across national boundaries. How have these problems changed or complexified in our digital environment? Well, over the course of the last 10 years, maybe, I've been messaging about this impending digital shift, this focus on words, on content as being a primary conduit to consumers. And a lot of that has been you know, trying to create fear and uncertainty in the market, that you've got to be making a change. And then March 2020 hit and it happened. The digital shift happened right in front of us. The only connection that many brands had with their consumers for most of 2020 into 2021 into now is through the content that they create. And words all of a sudden mattered more. They were an identifier to the business. They were the way the business sounded to the audience. It created the connection. And I think it changed the way that a lot of businesses thought about the way that they communicate. I mean, forget the fact that they're creating content and there's teams that do this for a living. Like as a brand, who do I wanna be in front of the people that I care about, that I'm serving? And it's been a really exciting time. I mean, there's been a lot of crazy things happening in the world, but in the in the linguistic software space, this has been a really interesting time to work with companies that are trying to differentiate based on the way they communicate, the way they write. I Maybe mean, we should go back a step. What makes translating information across these boundaries of culture, of language, of national context so challenging in the first place? Everybody wants to sound like something. And primarily, you want to sound like that in your main language. So as an example, when I got to this company, the first thing I did was set a tone of voice and how I want to communicate to our audiences. And we thought a lot about it. We defined the personality of the brand, how we would communicate. And then we we made that actionable. What does it mean to be wise, but not arrogant, for instance? What does it mean to be funny, but not smart alecky, you know, things that marketers say, what is, how do you translate that into action? So things like don't use buzzwords, don't use long sentences, use contractions to sound more human. And building that is a standardized way that we communicate. It kind of made the company sound, for lack of a better description, like me in English. And we're global. <laughs> and so how do we, if this is who we are, if we go back to the, the definition of who we are, and the way that we define the tone of the company, how can I make that usable in the languages that we support in the in the regions that that we do business? And it's that's a challenge because I mean I think everybody's first impulse is, well, take the words that you write and run it through Google Translate or run it through DeepL and Bob's your uncle. You've got your content, and it doesn't <laughs> doesn't work that way. I think I think you know where I'm headed. Yeah. Um, I take my translation. I'm using things like. Bob's your uncle. That's not a thing in German. So translate it. And people in Germany are like, who is Bob? Like, what does this have to do with anything? And so the idea of of parsing down to a core of of source language, of, of source content that becomes the thing that we're trying to say, and then being able to go back and build into that 
the voice of the company that we've determined in the language that we're translating into. Super challenging. It's something that we've built into our product um, so that we're able to help companies do that because many of our customers are big global companies that translate into tens and hundreds of languages. Um, but wow, what an effort to, to get it down to its core. Bob's your uncle isn't what you're trying to say. What are you trying to say? And then we'll find the thing in the language that we're translating into that's the rough equivalent to that so that we get that tone of voice. I want to get into Google Translate in just a second, but you said something very interesting at the beginning of your answer to my question that I wanted to pick up on. You said you wanted to make people sound more human. And I find that such a fascinating idea, especially in an age when we have all of these technological tools that are attempting to sound human. I think everybody at this point has seen the meme, you know, I made a bot watch a thousand hours of Seinfeld and this is the script that the bot came up with, which is so fascinating. And of course, the results are hilarious and cringeworthy. And it gets at something really interesting, which is that you can know essentially human language. There's a kind of like N plus X factor to getting to sound human. So what do we mean when we say that term sounds human? What are we getting at? What, what kinds of things make us sound human? I think a lot of it is the common sense of the language that you're communicating in. When you read AI created content, there's a message in it, but it just sounds like it's being written by somebody that doesn't really get the language. It comes off, AI sounds like English is a second language, essentially. And you read it and you're like, okay, I, I get this, but it doesn't, doesn't sound right. It doesn't connect with me. It doesn't sound the way that I need it to sound to recognize it as a person that I'm communicating with. And there are companies that are spending a lot of time and effort trying to define that X factor. How do you make this string of text human? And it's not just computers that are writing it. It also comes down to the fact that as an enterprise, if you're a business and you say, I want us, one of our core board level objectives is that we communicate like a person. We don't communicate like a business. We don't use business terms. We don't sound marketing-y. We're talking to people at their level, but we're doing it with thousands of individuals writing all over the world in the original language, in that language as a second or third language, people at varying levels of education, of experience. How do we standardize that? How do we make that sound like not humans, but the human that is the company? And that's where these brands are trying to head is it's not, it's not just about AI writing content. It's about masses of people and taking that mass automating a process that makes that mass, that corpus of content inside an organization be one voice. I wanted to pick up on something you said, which is that you're working with people, thousands of people uh, across different spaces, across different cultures, across different national contexts to help translate this information from one space to another space. And then, of course, you're also enlisting the techniques provided by technologies themselves. Do you think that we can get to a point where it's just the technology? Is that something that we would want? Are humans essential to this kind of operation? Or are we moving toward a place where the technology itself can do this work without any human? involved at all? I think there is an answer that could be yes. You could get to a point where there's no humans. Do you want to read that content? Is that content engaging? So AI and big data combined can create a body of text. It's not going to be a James Patterson book. It's not going to be something that you want to read. It's going to be a fact-based conclusion of data. And then you play with tools like Jarvis, an AI uh, content creation platform. And Jarvis pulls content from you, from the internet, comes together to create content, the reading of which is slightly challenging and takes human intervention. It's going to get you 50, 60% of the way doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But if there's no you, it, it can't continue. It runs out of things. And that's, we hear a lot from customers of, of my company that, well, you know, writers are concerned that eventually AI is going to take them all out. No, I don't, th I don't think it can. I think that what, what AI does for a writing organization, a content organization, is it allows them to eliminate a lot of the manual work, the editing process, for instance, and focus on the creative work that we're uniquely positioned to do. Like we're the idea folks. 
the computer is the heavy lifting, manual labor, doing repetitive tasks, doing editorial work, getting to a point where content is, is ready to be read and released. But without you, the computer's going to run out of things to say. It's just going to throw facts at you for facts sake. This makes me feel somewhat relieved as a humanist to know that humans will be important in the, at least this line of work in the future of work. I, I wanted to move a little bit more into this idea that technology is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, because I'm really fascinated by this idea that the answer to so many questions about how we can better understand each other across boundaries, again, language, culture, et cetera can be automated or that it is technological. I mean, I go back and forth on this. If I want to translate something quickly from another website, today I can go on Google Translator, any number of translation tools, and I get immediate access to content and ideas that in past times I would have never had access to. But on the other hand, I have to imagine that I'm still losing out on some really important dimensions of that information that don't translate. Idioms, for example, or puns. And if there are tech tools that can roughly translate, maybe fewer people are able to see the value of or are willing to take the time to actually learn the language rather than just have a machine translate it. How are tech tools changing the way that we talk to one another? Well, I mean, I think at a strict level, from a Google Translate standpoint, it's stripping the culture out of language. I mean, to your point, idioms are a spoken and written history of a language. I lived in the Netherlands for a number of years, and there are so many interesting Dutch idioms that don't translate, because when you translate it, it turns into, I don't see much dry bread in it. What do I do with that? But it's part of their rich culture of communication. And if they were translating content with that in it, that gets taken out. Like you can't, it doesn't mean anything to you and I unless you speak Dutch, um, and I don't anymore. And so computers are fantastic. Translation tools are fantastic at quick communication. I'm communicating with somebody in France. I don't speak French. I can get a thought across. But the more that we do that, and the more that we rely on that, the more that we strip the culture out of the communication and the human element of it, the connection that people get through that human element. So it's still important to learn these languages and learn the nuances in the language. I don't think, I don't see a future where in the education process, people don't take languages because there's a computer that can do it for them. I hope there is. I mean, that shouldn't be a shortcut. If, I mean, one, it's nice to be able to talk in public without having to open up my iPhone, talk into it, hold it up in front of you, and hope that what I said translates correctly so you don't hit me. I mean, even if it's just to be able to say you know, you're in the grocery store in, in Hod HaSharon and somebody says something to you in Hebrew and you say, I need a now we're on even ground. I just said, I don't speak Hebrew. And they say, Anglit, and I say, Ken. And now we know if you don't switch to English, we're done here. But at least we've had that conversation. And I think those things are really important beyond what I can do on my phone when I'm standing there in front of somebody. You see the videos of people on vacation. Where is the library? And they hold their <laughs> phone up to the person. And it's like, I don't know. That's not great connection. And, and I think that we still have a desire as people to have that human connection that you get from language. Well, I tend to agree with that. I'm a literary scholar. I hold language very dear. So thank you very much for delivering my PSA that I try and deliver as frequently as possible to take your humanities classes seriously. Um, <laughs> and I, I will co-sign everything that you said. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the challenges of translation, some of the trade-offs that we make. In literary studies, this is something that we talk quite a bit about, which is to say we talk quite a bit about the challenges and trade-offs of translation. For instance, in translating from one language to another, what do we keep and what do we sacrifice when we do that? When it is rhythm or alliteration or the sounds that language makes, are those things as important or more important than the meaning of the words themselves? How do we give a sense of cultural reference to a word, to your point, that doesn't have the same cultural reference when translated into another language? There's a very funny bit that I, I always think about when I talk about this. It's by a Finnish comedian who notices that the word ass means something very different in English than it does if we were to translate it straightforwardly. And the word actually changes meaning in a really flexible way, depending on the different contexts. This is a cool ass hat. 
means something very different than asshat or I got some ass last night. None of those things mean the actual meaning of the word in these contexts. None of them actually mean but, that is to say. Now, a good translator who has some context and familiarity with the language can pick up on these nuances of language and translate them appropriately. Can tech get around these foibles of language or is this the point where you actually need the human? What do you think? I think that if we could get you there, it would just be a very long road because you would have to, I mean, you're essentially going to try and ext- extract from the content, the context. So what does this mean? So I've got this stream of characters, words, and I need to pull out of that the content and the context. What is it, what is it doing? What is it supposed to mean? And then start identifying you know, tokens and sentences inside that add linguistic data, identify terminology around the word ass, make sense of it. So essentially applying some set of patterns and AI rules around it. So now I know this ass means this and this ass means this and this ass means that. But as I translate that, I need to add back in all the steps that I just came through. So going back up that ladder to try and make it make sense. And I still lose the fun little fact that it's the same word because in the language that I'm translating into, it's not going to be. I'm going to use the context that I built to change it. And we're going to go into French and it's not going to be the same word in every occasion. So you lose that fun. Is it alliteration or whatever we're trying to do with it? It's gone. All of that's gone. And and so you do lose some of the flash of what you said in the source language. Can you give us a sense a little bit of how the technology works, how the tech works to translate languages across barriers? I, I know our audience may not necessarily be technical and be able to follow along with all of the uh, nuances of the technology, but maybe you can just share a little bit of a kind of God's eye view of what the uh, tech looks like when it's trying to move from one language to another language. Yeah. So, I mean, what we are doing is is roughly what I just talked about. It's, it's natural language processing. So the, the steps that you're taking is you you start with whatever the content is, your, your paragraph, your sentence. And then we need to break it down. So if you can visualize what XML looks like, um, you know, the, it's it's identifying each object of content. And so we're, we're extracting these pieces in here. And you can think in terms of nouns and verbs and their placement, where the adjective plays in, how we're connecting these. So identifying the, the tokens in here and what parts of it are segments of sentences and sentences. And then through morphology and compound analysis, we're able to essentially identify what it's supposed to be saying. Then we have to take the patterns of it. That's everybody has their proprietary rule sets, whether it's Google or DeepL or any solution and work backwards from there in the next language. So how do I add back in? This is where the adjective is supposed to be and the purpose of this to get back through the tokens and the sentences back into a sentence, add context into it and deliver it back. And there's a lot of room in there for decisions to be made. And that's why, I mean, as a user of Google Translate, you probably write something, put it in Google Translate, translate it, take that translation, translate that back into English to make sure that what you're saying is somewhat similar. Really, what you've just done is gone through that decision tree twice. So it's like the telephone game. If you keep doing that, eventually it's going to say, you know, map monkey Poland Springs. It's <laughs> not what I was talking about. And that's part of the, the risk of these, of these NLP products is that they make decisions. So if I pick the wrong context, I've got multiple steps ahead of me to get to the base of the content and then translate backwards where I can get further and further and further away from the point. I wanted to ask a question about the kinds of skills that you're talking about here, because I have to imagine that if you're working with this technology, if you're working at your company, you have to be able to think in terms of language, you have to be able to think in terms of using the technology, you have to be able to blend those things, you have to have a kind of capacious understanding of how uh, content moves across languages, We also have to understand the technological dimension. Can you give us a sense of what kind of skills you think really need to come together to work on this kind of product? We're an interesting software company in that we have, I would say, outside of a company like Google that's 
just huge. We have a very high percentage of computational linguists. And, and so people that have dedicated a decade or more to the study of encoding of language and building natural language processing, it, it makes us a very interesting company. I mean, when I joined the company, I came out of mobile. So I didn't come in with this technology as my domain. And one of, my, one of the first questions that I asked to a coworker was, cool, computational linguist. What is that and how did that happen? And then I realized we have many, like there are very many people and there's a lot of PhDs, very educated people that spent a lot of time identifying how to make this work. And what they're focused on and what this business has been focused on is creating impact in content. You know, it's, it's, it's more than just the, identify, the identification of language, the ability to translate this language. It's about increasing the impact of it. So it's looking at components of, of qualities of it. So correctness, scannability, inclusivity, words and phrases, terminology of the content, consistency, clarity, tone across a document, a paragraph, a book, whatever it is, to find alignment around a guideline set and then to look at what the point is. What are we trying to do with this? So if I was talking to, for instance, a marketing organization and more directly a, a web team, what's the purpose of the content you create? Well, uh, let's look at our blog. We're writing a blog so that we're found. We have concepts that we want to be found for. Okay, what else? We have some conversion points in it to create leads. Cool. How's it, how's it doing? Well, we have a goal of getting to 20% conversion. We're nowhere near that. Fantastic. Let's look in your business and find content that works for you. Let's identify where you're successful. Let's find the commonalities across those seven components and then produce content, correct content, align content with those guidelines to show more of your existing content, more of the content you're creating to be as successful as your most successful content. And that's where companies like the top 20 global technology companies in the world, uh, many of the largest banks, financial services, pharmaceutical companies are using platforms like ours to increase that impact, to get the value of this thing. Because here's an interesting thing. So you're a person that deals with words every day. Would it surprise you that if I were to say to somebody at, pick a company, Microsoft, I can save you money on the creation and translation of your content. I can do that. Cool, but show me where on my budget I spend money on content. What do you mean? Like, you're Microsoft, you have a lot of content. Yeah, but we don't have a budget item for it. Like, there's no line item in my budget for content. And we realized that they're right. Content is the byproduct of what we do at work. We're, we're both at work right now. We're creating content. But this isn't... I, I don't have a budget for talking to you. I don't have a budget for writing things in my notebook during a meeting. I don't have a budget for typing at my computer. And what that does is it devalues the content that's being created. So when I talk about, you know, I can save you time and money on your content. Well, I don't need to do that because I don't spend any money on my content. I don't really measure things in time. Um, we just have this stuff. And helping companies to understand, like, no, there's a value here. Content is an asset in your organization. So if you think in terms of somebody like uh, a, a, a big computer software company that would have a tech docs website, so their documentation site, as an example, 7 million pages of content with an average visit duration of four and a half minutes just under 5 billion minutes of user experience. And you're telling me that you don't value that as an asset. What if through improvement, through alignment, through this software, you could increase the value of something that's bringing you 5 billion minutes of engagement with your consumer audience. Is that is that a thing? And it changes, like you see the light bulb go on and all of a sudden words, words matter and words are valuable and there's it's a billion dollar asset in my business that I didn't even know I had. There's not many billion dollar assets in an, in an enterprise. One of them is your brand. Another one of them is your entire collection of content. And neither one of those are well managed or well understood. And so how do we make words matter? Value them. Show that, show that they cost. And then all of a sudden people care. And then you start thinking about what can I do with this? How can I maximize this? Where can I take this? What can this do for me? And it all comes together.
well, Chris, we're going to work out your uh, payment schedule for indicating that words matter and that content should be compensated. We'll do that after the show. But there's so many questions that I have that come out of what you said. And thank you for pointing to the value of content, something that I hope as a literary scholar, I can demonstrate that words matter, that writing matters, um, and that it is valuable and that value should have a value attached to it. But I mean, there's so many questions that I want to ask, but I guess the, the question that forms closest to the tip of my tongue has to do with this idea that on the one hand, you look at, for example, Microsoft and say, well, you have a billion dollar asset here in terms of the value of your content, in terms of the value of your writing, in terms of the content of the information that you're putting out there in the world. And it seems to me, and perhaps this is hard to parse because Microsoft, of course, emerges in the context of a digital environment. And the digital environment, I think, starts to make the case for people in the context of the internet that information should be free, that it should be liberated, that it should be accessible to everybody. And in a sense, on the one hand, that puts a premium on the idea of information as inherently valuable. After all, everybody should access it under the premise that it is incredibly valuable. And yet what we start to see with the internet is the idea at the same time that information should be free. In other words, that it should be valueless in the sense of people having to pay to access it. So I realize that it's hard to parse the difference between you know an emerging idea that information should be free and the idea that the internet has created perhaps or given the incentive for people to create more content than ever before, because in a sense, the, the ability to create and distribute and have people access information is democratized. But I guess uh, the question here really is whether you think that there's the devaluing of information that you talk about in terms of people not realizing it as an asset, and whether that's in, in a sense connected to or commensurate with the idea of the internet itself and its access to information. What, what do we do with that, especially in the age of digital? digital tools like the one that you have worked on? We create better content. I mean, the problem that you're talking about is the, the internet bubble all over again. It's the, back when the internet started, we cared about eyeballs. I, I value your business on the eyeballs that it brings to your website. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if it works. All I care about is that you're bringing people because I'm going to monetize this through advertising. And that's what content has become. That's what words have become is bait. And at the enterprise level, I mean, that's how we market. Content marketing is huge. I'm going to create something that you want to read. I'm going to hang it out there behind a registration. You, you can have it for free, but you've got to give me your name. So nothing is free, but I'm getting, you're getting access to this content by telling me who you are. That's the primary way that I generate business and everybody pays for that approach. And now you see you know, media websites trying to come back around. They've been giving away news and funding that with advertising for the last decade. And that's not working anymore. People don't want to have ads and click through something 75 times. Like, hey, have you seen this actress? Look at how they live now. And you click on it. And then you have to click on it again. And within 78 clicks, you can find out that it wasn't even the picture of the person that they were showing you. I fall for that every so often. And it's not interesting. So I... I mean, for me, and because I'm in this business, I'll pay. I actually have a subscription to a real newspaper. Like I actually pay somebody to get words given to me. But that's a tough road for businesses that have, A, been giving seemingly giving content away through advertising model, um, or that are trying to do something different, but are batched in with businesses that give content away for free. And I mean, there's still people fighting the good fight. Audible is out there doing a great business with audiobooks, and people continue to pay for that. Boy, short of that, content is hard for people to buy. It's just a thing that they think should, they should get. And it doesn't help that the monetization of music, for instance, is kind of the same thing. You can listen to literally any song that's ever been written as long as you spend five seconds listening to a Patriot software commercial. Patriot software dot com people are fine with that and that's so <laughs> yeah. it's it's changing the way that we value this stuff but not necessarily in a good in a good way do you think that the kind of work that you're doing with acrolinks can can help to identify the value of content and get companies to start thinking differently about the way that they provide free content or do you think that this is a ship that has sailed 
I mean, I can, I can help them to see what the value of their content is and help them to increase that value. But a lot of my customers are big businesses that are doing this to attract an audience, to engage an audience, to retain an audience. So it's unlikely that they're going to charge for that content. It is very likely, though, that they're going to differentiate their business around that. So if you look at, for instance, one of our customers is a very famous, very big motorcycle manufacturer. And the reason that they use software like ours is they're trying to standardize their product manual. And people that work at a motorcycle plant creating product manuals probably ride motorcycles. They probably speak in a motorcycle language that the motorcycle manufacturer would prefer they not use in the creation of a product manual. And so products like ours will help them write like the company wants them to write, increasing the value of the asset they're creating, the value being the usability of their product. We also have customers in the device, uh, medical device space, and the purpose of the use of our product is to ensure that doctors using the manual as they operate on patients don't kill the patient. Super valuable. It doesn't necessarily drive revenue around the content, but it drives success and saves lives as a byproduct. Getting back to the theme of words matter, if you can't understand the product manual that you're using for a laser surgery tool, somebody's going to end up with a weird looking face or worse. And that's that's a problem. So seeing the importance of the materials that they're creating, leaning into that importance, making sure that clarity, consistency, common terminology is throughout the entire thing things so that you can understand what you're doing. Super important. I, I wanted to ask you about the kind of clarity that you require when you get into the technical language as well, because I think the example you gave is spot on in thinking about the stakes of getting language right. You know, the example I gave with about with the idea of the cool ass shirt or the bad ass, right? These are these are ways in which language and the idiosyncrasies of language actually help to change meaning. And I used that example to add a little bit of levity to the conversation, but you bring it back to the gravity of the situation by giving the example that you did. And you're pointing at something very serious, which is that language knowledge oftentimes means grappling with an entire culture and an entire web of semantic meanings in all sorts of intangible ways, not just with its words, but all of the attachments to words and all of the kind of uh, technical applications of words. How do you think about the concept of cultural connection across languages and across language boundaries when enlisting tech as a way to translate uh, content? And what kinds of, you know, I'm curious, what kind of connections to language come through in something as technical as, for example, a medical uh, brochure or something like that? That seems to me to be a little bit more straightforward in terms of language, but I think that you're suggesting that it is not. So that's an interesting, I have a great example. I wish I could say who it's from, um, but I was meeting with a major government entity. It's been in the news a lot in the last two years because I had an idea about the creation of content in support of pharmaceutical products during the regulatory process. And there are frameworks for how this content is supposed to be created. And wouldn't it be great if there was an automation process so that you could see up front whether or not content matches the required framework? And I'm in talking to them and they said, and they were kind of kidding, wouldn't it be great if your product could help the people, you know, the doctors that are actually writing the things that we're, we're saying in our reports because none of them speak English very well and the writing is terrible and they're doctors. So they're, they're speaking in, in a different language in doctor and nobody can read it. And I, I stopped and say, hey, wait, 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 wait. What I came here to talk to you about, I made up. Like I was at the gym one day and I was talking to a friend in life sciences and we were like, this would be really neat. What you're saying, that's what our product does. Like that's exactly what we do is make it so that you can get the specialty of the doctor. Like they know things, they communicate in ways that are important and specific and get the essence of, of the things that they're trying to say, strip out the things that don't make sense, that make it unclear and make that content safe and usable. And the whole room was like, what? Yeah, no, I, I made up the other stuff. I thought that was a neat idea. This is the idea. This is what we do. And, and I mean, it, it's absolutely life-changing to them. And when you think about 
all the things that come out of the head of a brilliant scientist and how do you take that and put it down on paper and how do you do that when you when that brilliant scientist is writing in english in bulgaria in english as a second language that's that's a huge and giant challenge and i don't want to take everything out of it i don't want to lose what it is but i want it to be readable because it's important and and that's what we're setting out to do is be able to know the right things to leave in the right things to take out and the way to standardize that so that it becomes consistent is there an ethic of translation that you stay with? You know, this is a podcast on ethics and technology, and I'm very well versed in some of the ethics of translation when it comes to human translators. For example, how do we stay with the author? How do we um, communicate culture as well as uh, linguistic meaning? How do we balance things like tone with things like the integrity of the words themselves? But I'm curious uh, when we add technology to the mix, whether there is any change in the kind of ethics that come into play? I think that's more difficult for a computer. And I think that's, it goes back to why I think that people still matter in this process. And it's one of the reasons that we don't say that our product will cut the entire editorial process. It won't. There are things that you absolutely need to do. And I think to, to your point, it's being able to identify once we've gone through the process of improving content, is it still the content? And the computer can't know, well, some computers could probably figure it out to a point, but can't really know that the way that you can as the editorial lead for the organization or as the writer. Um, what we're trying to get to is a point of clarity, correctness, um, readability uh, in whatever language it makes it into. Um, and then you need to make sure that it's still what you want. I, the story that I owe my go-to story is that when I was at my last company, and the reason that I work here now is because I experienced this. My best writers were brilliant technicians who wrote very technical content in English as a second language. And not just one, I had multiple people like this. So I ended up with not just one bad way of writing, but many bad ways of writing. Really great technical content. And the idea of being able to provide them with a piece of software that would push all of our rules and how we want our content to be, how we want it to sound, the tone, all of it, the words that we use. In that company, we were a mobile testing company that wouldn't use the word test because we were selling to DevOps. And DevOps doesn't test. They're, they like quality software. So say quality. I can't even tell you the, what we did without saying test. So how do you think my writers were going to handle this? And that meant that when we get the content, I can't, I can't edit it because if I edit it, it's not just a correctness issue. I'm changing the context and I don't even know it because I don't understand the technology that they're writing. The ability to push all this back to them in their first draft and come out with the content that they're looking to create, but that's life-changing. And I mean, just from a, a me standpoint, me being one of the people that edited this content, it's life-changing. But cost saving, tens of thousands of dollars a month in editorial across the world, trying to review this content and make it good. When all I need to do is say, here's a framework and you don't even need to manage it. It's done. Boom. Now you're on. And as they're making, and there's an important nuance here. They have the control. With our model, we don't do anything forcefully. We don't force you to change. So in the example of test versus quality, if you type test, at that company, you'll be guided to write quality. Hey, did you mean, did you mean to say quality? No, I didn't. I actually meant to say test. Cool. Fantastic. We can't force you to do something because there is that art. It is going to take it off your script. It's not going to mean what you want it to mean. But I do want you to know that I'd rather have you say quality when it makes sense. And that's how the entire process works. I think your sentence is too long. I think this is how you could make it better. Nope. Okay. I mean, it's going to come out with a lower score. It's going to not be as complete and somebody's going to edit your content more, but it's up to you. And that's a really interesting way to try and adhere to what the original author had in mind. This is a really interesting area for me. I recently had the experience of trying to write a letter to somebody, an email to somebody in Google and in my Gmail, and Gmail consistently gave me prompts about what they thought that I should say next. I actually changed the content of the letter. I wanted to say something along the lines of, would you like to come to dinner? But the predictive uh, assumptions about what I was going to say actually gave me new ideas about what I wanted to do with this person. And it actually ended up transforming the letter itself. And it's got me 
thinking about how many times during a simple day, what I say or what I intend to communicate to somebody else is actually transformed, not just in kind of small linguistic ways, but actually conceptually, actually in terms of what I end up communicating to somebody else uh, by these kind of predictive AIs. And so I guess I'm really curious to hear your thought on this. What are and how do you think about some of the changes to language in relationship to technology, tech, and I'm including predictive text uh, here, AI, or even some of the machines that we transmit language through, keyboards now more than notepads, Zoom rather than face-to-face, auto dictation rather than typing. How are all of those things changing our relationship to language, how we use language, how we communicate to other people? Well, one thing's for certain. Ducks have never been as popular as they are right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's for ducking certain. (laughs) And that starts to feed into the culture because it's not rare now to get a text where somebody just doesn't even try to fight back. Like, it's fine. I'm going to use the duck emoji now. That's a 2020, 2021 thing now. It just grew into the culture. And it wouldn't have if it weren't for auto-replace on an iPhone. I don't know why Apple doesn't know obscenities. I know they do. They just, for some reason, think that we're all better people than we actually are. But that's, that's a thing that is bleeding into culture. It's changing the way that people communicate from a language standpoint because they're just giving in or they think it's funny or it's, it's a neat thing to do that's become a thing that you do. Um, I love the idea that you changed your entire plan for the evening based on autocomplete. Like, thought we were going to dinner. Now we're going ice skating. I didn't know. This is what happens. And I mean, it's 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 very interesting. It's also, though, the flip side of that is that there's a lot of room for evil with that because you see how easily we're controlled. We're laughing about ducks. They could have done this with anything. And you just pick the thing that you want to impact. And if you're an evil empire, you start leaning into it. And I'm going to take a word and I'm going to change it. And I'm going to do one at a time until people don't notice that they're saying things completely different than they used to. And they mean completely different things. And that's, I think that's the downside of all of this is that we're getting complacent with the way that we let our tools assist us. And we're not thinking about what it is as much. We're just saying Apple knows it's probably fine. She's got it under control. And next thing you know, we're saying things that we didn't mean. We don't look down. I mean, I send texts all the time that make no sense. And you get it, you know, like, I wasn't talking about apples at all. I don't even know where that came from. I'm sorry. In a business context. And that's, that's difficult. So it's, I think it's something to continue to watch is what are our smart products prompting us to do? Is it, is it a duck emoji or did we just go completely off the rails? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the person that my auto voice dictation thinks that I am or supposes me to be. (laughs) It's a a fascinating person, that person. I mean, what you're talking about here sounds a bit like science fiction novel, this idea that our technological tools can prompt us into becoming people that we never intended to become or to push us to say or convey or actually think things. based on the prompts that it gives us. Is this something that keeps you up at night or is this kind of in the realm of what you consider to be science fiction or you know, outside of the realm of possibility? I don't know if it keeps me up at night, but I definitely think about it because I, I mean, I see it happening and I hope that it's by mistake because me as a person, it's like the people that worry all the time about throwing out their mail because somebody's going to find it and track them down and steal their identity. And I'm just like, I'm not JLo. Nobody cares about me. I don't think that people are trying to change my language, to change my personality, to get me to be a weapon to take over the world. So I hope that this is just a funny thing that happens when I type this word. But I know that it doesn't need to be. Like, if you were so inclined, you could impact people. You could change the way people think. And we see that there are things in the world that change the way people think all around us. And this is just another one. What are some of the trends that we should be on the lookout for, not just in dystopian senses, but in general, when it comes to AI and translation and language? I mean, I think that where we're headed is is in creating content that's better engaged to the individual audiences. That's the positive side of this. So you should be able to see yourself in the people that you communicate with, in the companies that you communicate with. We can understand you better as a consumer and and be more relevant to you, be more 
relatable to you and give you a more comfortable experience with us as a brand. And that's what we're all looking for. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for understanding. We're looking for inclusion. Let's pick a really positive topic. One of the things that our product can do is spot and remove and replace non-inclusive language. And it's super interesting when you start heading down that road. Every company in the world right now is, is, is looking at this as a thing if they haven't already like, how do we be more inclusive with our audiences? And as, as you look at language and the things that you say, there are things that we all say that we don't think about at all. Don't give it a thought. Just say it because it's a thing that we've always said. And then you find out what it means and where it came from. And it changes the way that you think about it. And you shouldn't say it. You never knew that. Um, but then you learn it. And how would you learn that in, in your world, if not for the ability for AI to recognize the thing that you've said and point it out? It doesn't have to, AI doesn't have to be a jerk about it. It doesn't have to shame you, but it can just prompt you with, did you know? Did you know what this means? And then you start thinking about it and it gives you the ability to be a, a better communicator, a better person and more inclusive with your audiences. And that is really important right now. It's been important for a long time, but it really popped up in, in very relevant conversation over the course of the last two years. And, and companies have put a lot of time and effort into building processes around this. And we have software, companies like mine and mine have software that, that helps with that, that helps to, to teach people, not just fix people, but teach people and make people better. Can, can you give me an example of kind of moment where Acrolinks has made an intervention that is in line with a more inclusive kind of context? And the most obvious one is that we work with a lot of software companies. And if you look in their product documentation, there's a lot of talk about master-slave relationship between data tables, like thousands of references to it across their documentation, tens of thousands of references. And that's never really been a concern of people's haven't thought about it. It's just a thing they type. And the ability to go and find those, identify those and improve those is something that companies care about. Somebody types out, it could be a, a sports reference, like, you know, let's knock it out of the park. That's cool. Unless you live in a country, PS, most of them, that doesn't have baseball, or if you don't watch baseball. So maybe it would be nice to know when you type, hey guys, let's go knock it out of the park. A, are you communicating with guys exclusively? B, does your audience know what you're talking about? Do they care about baseball? Those are up for you. You need to make that judgment call. But I would, if in it were me, I would change it to, hey, everybody, let's go do a great job. Much more inclusive. It doesn't have to be diabolical language. It's just thinking through the things that you're saying and making sure that you're inclusive of your audiences. If you are, in fact, talking to an all-male group of baseball fans, then keep it. Your call. But I bet you're not. I love that. I love that idea. That's that's really fascinating. And it really gets me thinking about some of the things that perhaps AI or tech can do that actually human beings um, can't do or sometimes won't do simply because we're so familiar with the language. There's a famous David Foster Wallace quote where he's giving a speech and he talks about the young fish who runs into two older fish. And the two older fish are swimming along and the younger fish comes up to them and it says, you know, I, I'm curious about the principles and all of the different chemical compositions of water. And the younger fish goes on and asks a very complex question. The two fish just look at them, swim on by and say, one says to the other, what's water? And sometimes I feel like language is water and we swim in it all the time. And we're so familiar with some things like knock it out of the park if we live in a certain kind of water called English that we don't recognize perhaps when it would be confusing to somebody else who has just more recently come across our language. So this is really fascinating for me because it gets me thinking about some of the things that technology perhaps can do uh, that human beings cannot do. Do you think that there are things that our tech can do that human beings can't? I mean, the, the broader conversation has been the points where technology cannot do something and therefore human beings have to come in, but maybe we can flip that. <laughs> are there things that the tech can do that humans can't? It's more the scale of it. So I think what we're trying to do is take what a human can do and then overlay that at great scale. And it's not just what a human can do, but what a number of humans can do. So taking the best of what you have, creating a complete approach, and then overlaying that over a lot of content. And it gives you a scale that you don't have with people. 
And again, it also clears up those people that would have to muddle through all that content to be creative, not to be mechanical. And that's what we all want to be. There's a fear, especially with, with people looking at software like ours for the first time, that, oh, this is going to replace me. And interestingly, my, my sister writes technical contracts for a major consulting company. And you should look at this. This would be really interesting. I do a lot of the editorial work. I don't want to do that. But I'm not replacing you. I'm letting you be the idea person. You get to be more creative. You get to be more impactful, win more deals with better contracts because you have a better contract. Nope. Not interested. Don't want to be replaced by a computer. We don't replace people. We help people do the thing that they were trained to do in the first place, which is think and create and be creative. Most people don't come out of college with a degree in editing. They come out with a degree having to do with something around writing, but you don't get to do that. Now you do. I mean, for me, the reason that I love what we do is that for 20 years of my career, editorial meant make sure it doesn't have an obscenity in the middle of it and get it on the website. And I didn't know what it said. I didn't know if it represented the business. I didn't know if I liked the content we were creating. I just knew that it wasn't going to embarrass us. We're past that. We've done that through AI. Now I'm reading it to see if I like it. Does this say what we want? Is this going to be a successful piece of content? Is this going to drive business results? I know there's no obscenity in it. It has a score on it, tells me that. But do I like what it says? And it changes the whole way that you look at, in this case, business content. Because now we're looking for the most impactful content. We're looking for things that are going to move the dial. I'm investing in this. This is important. And can we get things that work, not just that don't embarrass us? That's a huge opportunity for businesses. I have so many questions, and I think we only have time for one more. Maybe we can end on a bit of a philosophical note. Many philosophies have qualified language as the kind of essential characteristic dimension of that category we call the human. How human is language in an age when tech can write, can speak, can communicate in language for us? Wow, that's a good one. I think it's as human as you let it be. I mean, I think that you want to bring that into your content. You need a voice. And it starts with a, with a person. It can't, you can't build a voice around a computer. A computer has no voice. So even if I could automate the creation, the clarification, the alignment of that content, get everything done, it has to start with, in this case, me. It has to sound like something. I define what I want it to be. You're taking that human aspect and you're building a model around it. So good content can exist without that piece. You can't just read a bunch of books and build a voice around it and communicate it. Eventually that's going to fall flat. You need somebody to determine that. So when I did this, when I did it at this company, it was, this is our tone of voice. This is what we want to sound like. This is the personality. And then, and then we turned that into a computer program, but it had to start with us. And if it didn't start with us, it doesn't sound like a person. And so I hope that that can't be replicated, that without you, it's not us. It's just words. Thank you very much, Chris. 